0: Hello everyone, and thank you all for joining us today for this session of the Becker's Health IT plus Revenue Cycle Management Virtual Conference. I'm Ayla Ellison, Managing Editor of Becker's Hospital Review, and I will also be the moderator for today's session. I am joined by three great panelists today from Erlanger Health System, Common Spirit Health, and Change Healthcare who are going to talk about some of the key revenue cycle challenges today and also talk about some strategies to combat those challenges as well. In just a moment, I'm going to turn the floor over to our panelists so they can introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about their organizations and then we're going to uh, jump in with questions that I have prepared. So at this time, I'm gonna go ahead and turn the floor over to Steve Sharman from Common Spirit Health. Steve, can you tell us a little bit more about your role in your organization as well?
1: Sure, thanks, Ayla. Uh, My name is Steve Sharman. I'm the System Vice President of Revenue Cycle for Common Spirit Health. Common Spirit Health um, spans 21 states and over 140 hospitals, I think is our count now. My role as the System Vice President of Revenue Cycle is to oversee um, all facets of the revenue cycle from um, the beginning where the patient is uh, scheduled and registered all the way through billing and collections.
0: Thank you so much, Steve. And Carmen, can we move to you?
2: Sure, hi, my name is Carmen Sessoms. I'm Vice President of Customer Experience at Change Healthcare. And um, my role at Change Healthcare is to make sure that we work with our trusted partners to make sure that they can get the value out of their RCM technology purchase or engagement solutions. So at, at Change Healthcare, we, we're a technology and services partner working to inspire a better healthcare system with our innovative clinical, financial, and engagement solutions.
0: Thank you so much, Carmen. And Brett. I'll turn the floor over to you now.
3: Uh, sure, uh, my name is Brett Tabor. I'm the Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Erlanger Health System. We're the big public hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're a teaching hospital, uh, about uh, nearly a thousand licensed beds. Uh, We have a trauma center, a children's hospital, uh, six helicopters, uh, and so we are the safety net hospital for the region as well.
0: Thank you so much, Brett. And I'm actually going to stick with you here to kick things off with our first question. Um, several of the questions today have to do with some the revenue cycle and financial challenges tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I know that the American Hospital Association originally released estimates um, saying that hospitals across the U.S. were going to be losing Uh, Roughly $50 billion a month um, due to lost revenue or higher expenses tied to the pandemic. I think looking out from July to December, that number has been adjusted to possibly $20 billion per month. Um, Either way, a really high amount and a huge financial challenge. So Britt, um, can you tell us a little bit more about how Erlanger Health System has approached this challenge as a safety net provider and also just how the pandemic has affected your market and any revenue cycle adjustments you've made to help overcome those?
3: Uh, sure. We, uh, uh, the state of Tennessee uh, actually mandated uh, all elective surgeries stop uh, near March 23rd. Uh, For Erlanger, that was the significant impact from a revenue cycle standpoint, uh, since a lot of the margins are baked into those elective procedures. Uh, We were one of the first hospitals, I think, that went into some mandated cost uh, containment uh, issues, such as we furloughed uh, a lot of our non-clinical staff. Uh, We went to uh, three-day work weeks on some staff. Some staff we went to one week on, one week off. Uh, We eliminated all overtime. Uh, We temporarily stopped the vacation accrual. Uh, We also uh, stopped uh, temporarily the 403B matching for the retirement program. Uh, Leadership forum uh, and our uh, physicians all took uh, cuts and pay, Uh, and uh, we tried to maximize any of the clinical staff uh, tied to volumes. In other words, as those volumes changed, uh, we had daily productivity reports to make sure that we were staffing at the appropriate levels. Uh, obviously, because we we're a safety net hospital, we had to be open. Uh, so that was our main mission, is to ensure that we're here for the patients. We ensure that our PPE is at the right standards. Uh, we went into a lot of uh, uh, different uh, ways of conserving uh, gowns, masks, etc., cetera, to ensure that not only for the short term, uh, but for the long term, we're here to service uh, our community. Uh, from a revenue cycle standpoint, we immediately uh, contacted all of our major payers to ask what can we do from a liquidity standpoint to keep our balance sheet strong during this particular time. Uh, they, were, they worked very well with us. They fast-tracked a lot of the accounts that were in the appeal process. Uh, we reviewed any accounts that were over 90 days old uh, to determine what is the holdup, what's the additional information we need. And then once we were made aware of that, we passed that as a priority. So during this time, our revenue cycle department, such as our coding, our patient financial services, the follow-up and the meeting registration, they were very busy uh, because uh, we wanted to make sure that as we get through this pandemic at the end, uh, we did not have a significant AR that was aged, nor did we want to make sure that we didn't leave any monies on the table. Uh, so with all those cost containment measures, that did help us uh, at this point uh, get through, uh, uh, even though we still had losses associated with the pandemic, uh, we still believe that if we had not put these uh, implementation things in place at the end of March, we would have been a much more serious uh, uh, trajectory than where we are today.
0: And so rolling out those all of those um, measures early on is what it seems like put Erlinger in a better position, even though, uh, despite some of these, um, you know, challenges associated with revenue cycle. Steve, I would like to hear from you as well on this question. I know Common Spirits spread across, you know, more than 20 states, but can you talk a little bit about the revenue cycle challenges Common Spirit is faced, and also any um, changes that the system has made to address those challenges as well?
1: Sure. Um, you know, similar to, to what Britt was saying, we we've made a lot of um, similar strides in the revenue cycle working with payers. Uh, we felt it was a good opportunity to really focus on our aged AR, what was, what was holding up those claims, the ability for them to get paid. Um, and so we've reached out to our to our payer partners um, to really focus on that greater, what I would call greater than 90 days. Um, and, and um, you know, obviously, it's what we had to focus on since there was very little revenue coming in um, in the earlier buckets. And so we spent a lot of time with, with, um, with our payers to try to, to knock some of that AR through. Um, we also took some, some measures in that we had some, you know, I guess, non-revenue cycle measures with executive pay cuts. Um, and and um, we were able to, so far at least, um, weather the storm with some of those measures that we took. But you know, I think um, in, in general, Common Spirit has taken the stance that, that we have a responsibility and a unique opportunity to, to lead with reassurance in, in this time. And so uh, I'm appreciative of our, of our leaders. And really, I guess it's across the board from, from the, the top down. Uh, that we stay true to our values. We 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 are one of the largest, if not the largest, Medicaid provider in America, with uh, with our expanse over 21 states. And so we knew that we had an opportunity, or had a responsibility to to um, keep the doors open, um, so that we could we could treat um, we could we could be there for our communities. And so we are uh, grateful to be able to report that we have not had um, a single layoff as a result of COVID. Uh, we've made some other uh, measures. And of course, we're grateful for the federal government and some of the CARES Act funding that has allowed us to, to also weather the storm through, uh, through this COVID uh, pandemic. Um, I, I will say that as, as um, the hospitals opened up a little bit, um, we, we kind of took, a uh, I guess, the, the analogy that we use instead of flipping the switch for some of our elective surges, surges, uh, services, um, that we more kind of took a, a an approach where we we, I guess the instead of flipping the switch we used a a, a, a dimmer where we kind of slowly ramped it up with, with a lot of um, advice and 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 um, input from evidence-based processes for resuming our our uh, needed services in our communities. Um, we we obviously aren't there aren't all the way back yet, but uh, we have uh, been able to to um, to open up some of those services in a smart way and in a safe way, but I, I would say you know I think going back to the revenue cycle, um, again not only the the AR aging that we really focused on, um, but even from the beginning with our with our payer partners, uh, we're grateful that they um, that they relaxed some of the authorization rules and and those kinds of things so, to allow us to to treat our patients without getting uh, bogged down in some of the the mundane processes that uh, that define the revenue cycle.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. I think that's one of the things that um, not only we've been hearing from a lot of different hospital and health system executives, um, but reading even through um, earnings reports is just the the um, the appreciation for some you know the some of the payers that have um, you know worked with health systems during this time to try to to navigate some of these challenges. Um, Carmen, I wanted to turn to you now. I know your view is going to be a bit broader. Um, and so I would love to hear a bit about the, um, you know, the clients that Change Healthcare has been working with during this time. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are some of the biggest challenges?
2: Sure. And, you know, some of the biggest challenges are um, technology with being able to do more or less. I mean, we all talk about that. Telehealth um, and there's competing priorities to get a lot of that IT put in there, but telehealth is important, and there was a lot of um, work to make sure that we could uh, we could work with customers to get that up and up and working with a lot of the customers that didn't already have it. but I think also from a revenue cycle pr- perspective, looking at um, coverage discovery and looking at funding mechanisms because yes, um, elective procedures were put on, were sidelined, but you had a lot of other people coming in that may not necessarily have some kind of um, coverage. So finding those funding mechanisms, whether it's helping them to get Medicaid, whether it's helping see if they qualified for some other program that hospitals had, helping them streamline and automate some of those things um, within their organizations. So it could help drive a better consumer experience for them, the patient experience, because The more transparency you give in the beginning, especially in these times, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of anxiety if you're, if you're, you have COVID, um, there's a lot of anxiety out there. And so just making that more transparent and helping them through that process and has been helpful.
0: Yeah, transparency is key right now, probably more than ever. Um, Steve, I Carmen brought up the telehealth um, reimbursement. I know I've read a bit about common spirit and how much the health system as a whole has ramped up telehealth during this time, like many other systems. Um, so, but can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, what sort of challenges has Common Spirit ran into with telehealth reimbursement? Um, and also just, you know, um, any advice you have for other systems who are, who are navigating this, who are ramping up their, their telehealth visits and just sort of have, how to navigate that from a revenue cycle perspective?
1: Yeah, I wish I could say that we that we have perfected it yet. I mean, obviously, we've all seen um, we've seen the the memos come out from CMS trying to stay ahead of telehealth and trying to allow us as providers to to uh, reach out to our patients through telehealth and through technology that we that we didn't do previously to the pandemic. Um, I, I don't think that there's still a lot of clarity from a Medicare perspective, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, and we're working with, with CMS and our contractors to, to make sure that we don't do um, anything that we're not supposed to. I am I'm really impressed though, with our providers at Common Spirit, how they were able to pivot very quickly and, and still provide the care to our patients that, that, that our patients needed whether it's from rehab to nutrition counseling and all the others that that didn't used to be provided through telehealth. Um, I think that our stance was make sure that you take care of the patient and we'll figure out how to get paid um, when we can. And so we've had a team of people from attorneys and compliance to our revenue cycle team uh, and revenue assurance team trying to figure out how to make sure that we don't violate our conditions of participation. While at the same time treating patients through telehealth, we have expanded. Um, uh, we've expanded, and I think that now our 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 statistics are like three hundred. We've done three hundred and fifty thousand virtual visits since since March. We continue to see about ten thousand patients uh, through tele telemedicine a day, um, and we're expanding that through kind of what we call our health at home organization as well. Um, and and um, I think that again, we're grateful for the, the effort and the energy that has gone into it from our regulatory agencies to, to our, our payer partners and to our, our, our clinicians who are treating the patients, trying to make sure that we all do the right thing. I truly think that that's what we're trying to do as a healthcare organization, as a healthcare system right now, is trying to do the right thing. Um, and um, unfortunately, getting paid for it is a little bit more difficult. Um, but that doesn't have to happen right? Immediately. uh, What is important is taking care of the patients and I'm I'm grateful that we've been able to do that.
0: Yeah, and and Brett, I'd love to hear from you as well as as far as the telehealth reimbursement um, topic. Um, Has Erlinger um, increased the number of telehealth visits? And if so, what, you know, are you facing some of the same reimbursement? I I don't know if we can guess there are challenges, but questions um, at this point as well.
3: Yeah, uh, because Erlanger is a national stroke center, we were quite familiar with telehealth as it pairs to stroke. Uh, We uh, we were not familiar with uh, telemedicine at the primary care or specialist level. And so when this came across fairly quickly, we tried to move uh, uh, quite fast because we knew our patients uh, needed care, needed access to their physicians, but had concerns about coming to the hospital or coming to a facility uh, based on all the, the the CDC recommendations, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that we ran into was the platform to use uh, for these visits because there was very little guidance they gave. Uh, there were several options you could uh, apply, but again, thinking in the patient's uh, shoes, what are they used to? What type of do they have the iPhone? Do they have the uh, uh, Samsung Galaxy, what, what, what is the platform that they can use to, uh, and we didn't have a, a lot of uh, infrastructure to help support them as a, a patient trying to connect with Erlen. So we, we wait, waited through that fairly quick uh, because uh, we had to make uh, uh, access to our providers quickly and uh, accurately and safely. Uh, so we, we converted a lot of our visits to uh, telehealth and telemedicine and was very successful at that. Uh, we had not put a lot of time in it because of, as Steve mentioned, it was uh, not been reimbursed. Uh, and so uh, since our one of our local now uh, major uh, payers in the community has said that they will actually continue to pay for telehealth going forward, we're trying to incorporate that into our EMR uh, because our EMR has some modules that can help us do that. But again, we end up put a lot of effort or time Uh, because of the reimbursement. I do think that since uh, once uh, we get enough data in at the national level that will be hard pressed for CMS uh, and HHS to ignore was this successful, did it benefit the patient, Uh, was it cost effective, Uh, and were the outcomes uh, great? And I I do think that most of those answers will be yes it was uh, successful and it'll be hard for most payers to back up. Uh, I know that we've not got a lot of commitment going forward at this point, but I do think that a lot of the the data will point to a very successful way of treating a patient and efficient, and uh, the patient loves it as well. We have found now recently, a lot of patients uh, prefer a hybrid method. They don't want all of their visits based on telehealth. They want that interaction with the provider. Uh, but they, they do want to have some of the ongoing visits uh, via telemedicine. So I, I think it's, it's going to be a hybrid approach, and I think the data will support us continuing down this road.
0: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to keep watching this as we move forward, um, just even post-pandemic maybe, how telehealth um, sticks around and in what areas it sticks around as well. Um, I think across the board, the, uh, the executives that Beckers has spoken to over the last few months um, from hospitals and health systems across the country, it's just been absolutely amazing how quickly everyone has pivoted um, from you know specialty areas, like you mentioned, Brett, like stroke, all the way down to primary care physicians who, hadn't really done this before who are now this is part of their everyday workflow so it's really um amazing to see and it will be really great to, to continue to watch this and, and hopefully the the reimbursement aspect um, gets worked out as well um, Carmen I wanted to, to turn the floor back over to you now um, I love to get your perspective on these things because you um, you know you bring this sort of like broader view to, to every topic yeah. here so I just love I just want to hear from you um, if you could talk a little bit more about the telehealth aspect and, and also just what you're hearing from health systems right now in terms of the biggest reimbursement challenges.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, like, like Britt mentioned, um, telehealth was not widely reimbursable, and so payers have been inconsistent, right, in their requirements in the beginning. So what you saw was a lot of the bill claims were getting rejected, you'd have to rebuild them, and so with all of that data that's been coming in, we're able to look at it and, and see how the requirements are changing and kind of predict what it should be so that um, the industry is looking at it and saying, okay, we need to author these rules for claims, so like claims edits, um, so that it can process for payment. But again, the rules keep changing, um, the requirements um, are varying, and so it's it's really looking at um, the coding and um, how that's being done, because the modifiers and condition codes are basically what are changing all the time. Um, We are looking at um, how this is going to work, how it's going to, um, how can we get the answers more quickly, because what we're finding is the answers to our questions aren't coming in as quickly as, as we would like them to, so that we can be more proactive rather than reactive, but we're pushing up a lot of the processes forward as soon as possible so that we can catch this and help um, help organizations overcome some of the challenges that are happening out there with telehealth.
0: So acting on these and overcoming these issues as quickly as possible, I think that's key for every health system yeah. um, across the U.S. right now. Um, we do have about five minutes left before we're going to wrap things up today. But before we do, I want to ask one more question and then give each of our panelists a chance to share one final thought with our audience today, just a, one key takeaway on on revenue cycle challenges. But. Um, the one thing I wanted to um, ask our panelists today is: looking forward, um, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic and just revenue cycle challenges in general, what do you think? Budgets aside, we'll just say budgets aside. Which technology do you think offers the most promise of, of completely um, transforming the revenue cycle management? At your organization. So, what are you investing in? What would you like to invest in moving forward? Um, would just love to hear from each of you. Um, Brett, let's start with you
3: on that one. Sure, and as as you said, budget aside, I'd love to have more uh, investment in AI, artificial intelligence. I think with uh, the revenue cycle, it's a lot of volume that goes through there, and we're still spending a lot of time uh, with manual touches, uh, manual phone calls, uh, pre-certs. Uh, things that I think that as the artificial intelligence gets better uh, that they can handle this. It will make the cash flow much much faster, the cost of collection will drop dramatically, and you'll get a better satisfaction from our uh, patients uh, because the account will be more real-time, accurate, uh, and have good information available through their uh, EMR portal. So I, I truly believe that any type of artificial intelligence is key in the revenue cycle.
0: Thank you so much, Brett. Carmen, what are what are your thoughts on this?
2: I couldn't agree more because right now what we've been doing is really machine, you know, the industry as a whole, machine learning and automation, trying to find repeatable processes that, that could be automated. But what we really need is AI, where it can take algorithms and take a look at what can it do and predict so that you're driving exception processing, so that you can automate those processes let people know what's prescriptive and have it actionable and doing the next step so that your folks that you do have can focus on the things that need to be focused on, um, whether it's following up on those high dollar problem accounts that, you know, are going to deny or that you have to appeal, but the ones that that you know are going, and I'm just making something up that by day Seven, you should have a claim status and they're always going to tell you that it needs this, this attachment. Well, let's go ahead and get it out there even work with those payers to even though that it's not solicited, but for an unsolicited attachment to go ahead and go so that it's not going to stop those problems. And you can focus on the 20%.
0: Thank you, Carmen. And Steve, what about you? Um, what, What technology do you think offers the most promise?
1: Well, I'm going to cross off AI off the top of my list, and Brett and Carmen, uh, <laughs> but I agree with it. Artificial intelligence, I think, has a, a, a huge application in the revenue cycle with those repeatable processes. I think the other two things that um, that I thought of were kind of in the middle, at least the first one in the middle of revenue cycle space was CD- CDI and computer-assisted coding technology. I think that most health systems, a lot of health systems probably have something like that now, but especially when we have um, a DRG payers. I think that, that clinical documentation improvement technology that can read those EMRs is is really helpful. And frankly, for us has been a, a huge return on our, on our investment from a CDI perspective. And then the pandemic has just highlighted the opportunity that we have in the revenue cycle for a lot of self-service for the patient, whether it's text-to-pay or um, pre-registration that they can go on. and. And, and into uh, their portal and, and do some of those things. I think we're in a day and age now where people are used to doing things on their phones and on their computers mm-hmm. that we have historically staffed somebody to do. And that's not bad, but I think that the efficiency by allowing self-service is really important. So there's opportunity, if there's opportunities in the revenue cycle, I think it's in that, in that arena as well.
0: Well, thank you all so much for sharing your insight today for all these questions as we've worked through. Before we wrap things up, um, I do want to give you each a chance to to share one piece of advice or one final thought with everyone who's watching today. So, Steve, I'll start with you, and then we can go to Britt and then Carmen. Um, One final thought for everyone who is watching today.
1: Uh, So, so... Ayla, thank you. And thanks to Becker for giving the, giving us this opportunity to have this discussion. I, I think that, um, you know, we're in an interesting time right now. Um, and I think the revenue cycle is very important in making sure that that doors stay open and that, that patients get seen. And so while it's really easy to, to, to maybe panic or to, to um, crumble under the pressure that we're seeing, um, I think that we we just hang in there. I, I mean, I don't have a lot of great advice. I think we just hang in there, um, pull on the, the strength from our, our colleagues in the industry and the great ideas that they have, and um, not to use an overused phrase, but I think we will get through this, and, and we just gotta keep, keep supporting our clinical staff as best we can from the, from the revenue side. Yeah, I think uh,
3: very similar to what Steve said. I think in a pandemic or any situation like we're in, we you can either be the victim or you can be the hero. And I think this is shown where a lot of emphasis in the news, a lot of emphasis in the discussion has been on the clinical side of this pandemic. But I think a lot of people forget that the, some of the other hero, heroes, in addition to our nurses and our doctors and our patients, are some of the support staff that's behind the scenes, uh, which include the revenue cycle people. and. It's truly where they are, the liquidity or the organization, and they're ensuring that the doors can stay open so our clinical staff can do the excellent job they do. So I I truly believe this has shown that when we work together as a hospital system, clinical, non-clinical, and all working toward the same mission, uh, we can achieve whatever goal uh, and overcome any obstacle going forward. Thank you. And,
2: And
0: Carmen, one last final thought?
2: Sure. Um, it's kind of, you know, I've always said revenue cycle should always have a seat at the table, and it's really come to light, as as Stephen Britt has stated. And the one thing that I would like for folks to take away is make sure you have a trusted partner that you're working with, whoever that may be, and that you can collaborate with them to ensure that you are getting the most value out of your RCM technology or engagement solutions that you've purchased, and that you're able to maximize that utilization and adoption of best practice so that you can achieve your goals and KPIs because times have changed and really it's a partnership to get to that point.
0: Well, once again, thank you, Steve, Brett and Carmen for sharing all of your insight today, sharing your advice, um, what's working um, at your organizations and what you're seeing across the industry right now. Um, We look forward to having you three join us for future panels in the future, and also to everyone watching today um, for, to join future panels for the Revenue Cycle and Health IT Virtual Event and other Becker's events as well. That is all the time we have for today. Um, thank you all for joining us.